tonight on It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show. I definitely felt like the Violet reveal was a twist. Like, I emotionally was not prepared for that. This is going to be a, a haunted house full of spoilers this week, so. There was a poster of, like, her mangled face. Like, seeing that poster was enough for me. You can miss it if you're not listening carefully enough. And I love that. The father set up a, a motion-sensitive camera in her room, and instead he saw the boy crawl out from the painting. And she says, you have a very strange lifeline. And he says, why? And she says, because according to this, you're already dead. And so far, 10 people have died since being close to the hands that resist him. Like, this can happen in a movie? This like, can happen in real life? The, uh, the real-life serial killer who's in the movie? Everyone has to follow the same ghost rules. Welcome to It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show, a trivia variety show for and by American Horror Story fans where we take a sidewinding journey through topics inspired by episodes of American Horror Story. This is my one true love, my muse, Nathan Scathway. And this is my... Oh, shit, I was not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta like just like make a long list of cute things we can call each other and just read, right? the, just read the list. <laughs> Monique Christorf, ladies and gentlemen, she is amazing, and that's all you need to know. <laughs> we should also mention that with this episode, episode six, we are officially halfway through the first season of It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show. We have 11 episodes total and five more episodes after this coming your way. So thank you so much for sticking with us this long, and hopefully you continue to stick with us, and we'll have lots more creepy stuff to teach you as the season goes on. So, we we are going to be talking about some things to do with episode 7 of American Horror Story, which is called Open House. To start off with, uh, and obviously we know this, and hopefully our seasoned American Horror Story viewing listeners already know this, but this is the first episode in which Miss Violet is dead for the entire time. As we know, she died by suicide in the last episode though Tate tried to save her and made it look like he saved her he did not succeed so she is dead for this entire episode which introduces into the show um what I would say is probably my favorite uh supernatural horror trope which is the trope of they were dead the whole time anybody who's seen a reasonable amount of horror content <laughs> is aware of this trope it's it's used fairly often, uh, so much so that that it can often be a little bit easy to see coming and kind of feels, at least to me, feels feels like a little bit of a letdown when, when it isn't necessarily done well, when it kind of feels like a cheap shot, which I, I don't know, I think that's kind of the truth of twist endings in general on, on what makes a successful twist is, is whether it feels like you as an audience member have had a fast one pulled on you or whether you get there and you're like, oh, fuck, how did I not see that coming? Like, that's what makes makes a twist for me. Yeah, I, with, with this show specifically, I definitely felt like the Violet reveal was a twist. Like, I emotionally was not prepared for that. And, and you know, because you, like, preface, like, I hope everybody here has seen you know, the show, like, my worst fear was realized that there's someone who is just starting to watch American Horror Story that is also, like, coupling our show as, like, this weird, like, trivia, like, fun kind of, like, 
gonna learn more about horror and the show that I'm watching and then we just like killed that for them because that was like I was emotionally distraught when I found out that Violet was dead me too I I had no idea I did not see it coming at all and it it really threw me um which which I guess is a good moment to mention that this this particular segment for me this week is going to be spoiler mania um this is this is going to be a, a haunted house full of spoilers this week. So if you haven't seen any of the movies that I'm going to name shortly, that would be a great time to tune out because I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything or at least or at least to fast forward ahead to Monique's portion, because I'm sure what she has to offer will be far less spoilery than what I have to offer tonight. But yeah, so what I'm actually going to be doing is this is going to be a sort of part one of of this topic, a double feature, if you will, on on this trope because I love it so much when it is done well, as as I would argue that it is in this season, um, and I'm gonna focus this week particularly on how how that that is done well by maintaining the illusion, specifically how how the filmmakers and writers lace in clues and and carefully build that illusion so that it's not pulling a fast one on the audience so that if you go back and watch it, you can be like, oh yeah, that actually makes sense. They followed the rules of, of, of being dead and we just didn't notice it. For for this episode of American Horror Story specifically, some some clues that I just picked up on, on this viewing um, this time around. The Harmons are sitting down to eat dinner. Violet is the only one not eating. She just kind of sits there and doesn't touch her plate the entire time. Um, we establish that she's not going to school anymore, although it's just kind of chalked up to a, a behavioral issue. And this is also the episode where Tate sort of begins to subtly teach Violet about the house, about its rules, about the rules that the ghosts have to abide by, and by extension that she now has to abide by. And he doesn't, he doesn't do it in a way that that would make her suspicious or anything it's more just teaching her how to survive as a resident um but he teaches her the the go away rule kind of that that as long as you you tell the spirits to go away they will which i would love to know exactly how and why that works like what why is it that like if you just if you just firmly reject them <laughs> this is also the episode where he shows her the the little box of artifacts from from the the hole in her wall that has some information about previous residents so he's kind of just like giving her a general soft intro to where she's going to be spending the rest of eternity so yeah that's that's kind of just how they begin they begin to lace in the clues in this episode we don't we're not going to find out so to speak that that violet is dead for another several episodes so i'm sure over time I'll I'll be able to pick up on some some further clues that I can follow up on, but in a few weeks I'll come back with with part two of this topic, which will be focused on the moment of the twist ending, the reveal, and also possibly some big twist endings throughout cinema history. But this week, I decided to to watch a new movie, not a new movie, a new movie for me. Um, that falls within this genre, and it is a movie called Jacob's Ladder from 1990. Uh, it stars 
Tim Robbins, who our Stephen King fan listeners will recognize from the Shawshank Redemption, among many other things. It also stars Elizabeth Pena, and it was an early role for Macaulay Culkin. He plays Tim Robbins' character, whose name is Jake. He plays his son. It was directed by Adrian Lin, who was most well-known at the time probably for Fatal Attraction. And it, it focuses on a former soldier from Vietnam who lives in New York City, has recently returned from deployment, and is plagued by hallucinations and increasingly strange occurrences after he gets back, um, all the while suffering intense and fractured flashbacks to, to a day where his unit was attacked. I mean, it, it bears mentioning, because I'm talking about it, we we have to spoil at this moment that Jake uh, Jake didn't make it back <laughs> from Vietnam. Uh, he's dead the entire time. He, he is a ghost the entire time. It's, it's interesting because I, I would almost argue that it's not quite a twist. I... I mean, I like like I said, I I looked up this movie because I knew that it fell within within the trope. But even knowing that, I cannot imagine watching this movie and not getting a sense that he was dead the entire time because it's so trippy and surreal and dark and even a bit heavy-handed with the fact that he is dead a lot of the time. That that I can't imagine not not knowing that. I think I think probably the way that they were trying to structure the twist is is to make it look like Jake is in the process of losing of losing his mind due to PTSD from his experiences in Vietnam. And I, I kind of tried to look at it through that lens a lot of the time, knowing that that was what an an unaware viewer was probably being pushed to take from the movie. And even so, I think I think but the specific imagery, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute, the imagery and the the ways that they they pushed that were just a bit too surreal and a bit too dark, and it it would have spoiled the ending for me, I think. I don't know. But with this movie, the way that they they start to, to clue you in on the fact that Jake is no longer alive are through what are essentially cracks in the illusion of the fact that he is alive, sort of the illusion that his mind or or his soul has created around him to make him think that he's still alive. Because this this is not this is not one of one of the types of of movies within this trope where the character is walking around among living people the entire time and just doesn't realize that they're dead. It is entirely an illusion within his mind that has been constructed. It's it's not actual New York City that he's walking around. It's sort of this very dark, very gritty hellscape version of New York that gets darker and darker as the movie goes on. But it's because it's all taking place in his mind right at the moment that that he has died. Some of the clues that they start with are are some shaky details in Jake's life. He really does not like to talk about his past, specifically his his experiences in Vietnam. He very much avoids them as as a topic. He doesn't really like to talk about his former wife, his girlfriend at the time of the movie, who who actually shows up throughout the film in in different kind of personas. Like there are a couple characters that do that, that, that he sees the same faces, but they're different people. 
His girlfriend claims that she's not able to remember the names of his children, even though she sees them all the time. Whenever she talks about them, she's like, oh yeah, the kids, whatever their names are. And then as the movie went on, I began to notice that they, they used his children so infrequently that it was kind of hard to pick up on at first, but they started changing the actors. Like he couldn't, as time went on, he started to not be able to remember his kids' faces anymore. So they would literally change the actors who were playing his kids, but play it off as if they were the same kids the entire time. Jake also finds himself in a lot of like very bizarre, strange situations that wouldn't happen in real life. Getting stuck in a subway tunnel, which kind of I thought was meant to be a metaphor. It's the first thing that happens when he's back into the New York setting that he's on this subway train and gets to a platform and the platform is blocked. So instead he has to kind of get off the train and run through the, the tunnels and find a different platform, which I interpreted kind of as a, he's in the process of moving on, but he wasn't ready for the final destination kind of thing. So he's gonna go off on this, this other purgatorial journey first. He hallucinates quite a bit throughout the movie. Uh, there are moments where he'll be in a crowd and suddenly somebody will turn to him and half their face is like gone in a, in a gruesome war injury. Or there's a moment where a nurse, when he's he goes to like visit um, a psychiatrist or something like that in a hospital that he's been to before, and the nurse at the desk leans down to pick something up and her hat falls off and like a piece of her skull is showing like like through a bullet wound or something like that. And they're all, injuries that he would have seen in Vietnam, but like laced throughout normal people. He sees what he describes as demons running around, just people with really warped kind of monstrous faces. There's a, a sequence in the movie where he goes to a party where he has a lot of these hallucinations right after a palm reader who's kind of flirting with him is, is looking at his palm and reading it and she looks at his lifeline and is tracing and she says, you have a very strange lifeline. And, and he says, why? And she looks at him and she says, because according to this, you're already dead. And it's kind of just passed off as a joke in the moment, but she's dead serious, like he's, he's fully dead. And after this, he kind of goes into the crowd and starts to dance and has a full on breakdown where I would argue he was in the process of, of starting to realize what was going on but all of the people around him start to warp and show these injuries and everything. And after that, he develops a fever of 106 and they have to like give him this ice bath to cool down his body. And that's kind of the first instance that we see of any time that Jake gets close to the reality, or the, not the reality, the, 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 rea the version of reality that he's constructed for himself in his mind. Anytime that that gets close to breaking, it starts to manifest through physical symptoms in his body. Like he keeps getting sick every time that things start to not line up totally and usually his girlfriend is the one that's there to to nurse him back to health or to tell him he's just being crazy or whatever um in a way that sort of implies she's meant to represent i guess his denial i think i think was what they were going for there and then as the movie progresses um jake actually starts to interact with a few of the the fellow soldiers from his unit and it's likely that these characters are also meant to be dead. I think, I th I'm not sure if he's actually interacting with, with their ghosts or if it's just a version that his mind has constructed, but they all keep going back to this, this attack that happened on their unit, which got them sent home basically. And they, they can't remember what happened that night and they all have these theories about it. They're all 
reporting the same the same symptoms, hearing voices, seeing hallucinations, and everything like that. And one by one, these these people from Jake's life, specifically from his unit, start to disappear through eerily similar means, specifically cars blowing up. And that kind of kind of pushes this illusion for Jake that they that something happened to them when they were in Vietnam, that some sort of test was run on them that that mess with their heads and that are that's causing them all to now have these symptoms where they feel like they're losing their mind. And not only not only is that actually a symptom of the fact that he's trying <laughs> trying to force himself to realize that he has died, but it is actually connected to what happened to them when they were in in Vietnam. So how do we know that this is what's happening in Jake's mind right before he dies? That I'm actually going to go ahead and save for part two of this topic. That's going to be when I come back and I talk about all of the, the specific moments and reveals of, of each of these movies. So sorry to be an asshole, but you're going to have to wait. So yeah, that that is that's how Jacob's Ladder specifically goes about maintaining the illusion through through a means that's not necessarily built around fooling the audience it's more just built around confusing them i think it's it's more just a what the fuck is going on kind of thing rather than than you have no no idea what's coming until until the end um that i would argue is a type of twist ending and specifically a a they didn't know they were dead twist ending that came to prominence with the sixth sense man the sixth sense had such like a like it's it's like a cornerstone in my youth and like in my love for horror i mean i will full disclosure i had the biggest crush on Haley joel osment <laughs> i will i love this boy i i like and, and maybe this kind of ties in for my luck because I was willing to watch this horrifying movie. And of course, I'm like, I'm a child. I'm like seven years old. But I like, I would cover my eyes during like the worst scary <laughs> parts and I would just let myself see Haley Joel Osment. So oh this- Oh my God. I love this movie. I I also love this movie. I would, I, I have a, a really hard time naming my favorites of anything because it makes me feel guilty towards the other things in that particular medium that I like. Don't want to hurt, don't want to hurt its feelings. Exactly. Um, don't want to, don't want to be disrespectful to anything, but I would say The Sixth Sense is one of my top favorite movies of all time. Um, I think especially for for a horror movie no no shade to horror movie writers but horror movies are known for the fact that they're not always the most well written <laughs> for, for a lack of of more sensitive way to put it the the focus isn't always on the writing but this is this is one of those movies where from the second it starts and then with every every single scene you can tell how much the focus was on the writing. Um, it was written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. It was the first, the first movie that he wrote and directed, and what brought him into the public eye as as a master of suspense and the master of the twist ending. It was made in 1999, starring Bruce Willis, Haley Joel Osment, as we have stated, and Tony Collette, who many of our viewers will remember for her utterly terrifying performance in Hereditary. Movie ended up being a huge hit, earned six Oscar nominations, including one for Tiny Little Haley Joel Osment. Became a, like I said, a cultural institution and a touchstone for for horror movies. 
I mean, who, even if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, which I'm always shocked when I meet people who haven't, but is there anybody that doesn't know the line, I see dead people, and who doesn't know what it comes from? Like, it's one of those movies that's just in in the public mind because it it's so culturally significant and so iconic. And it's really, at least as far as what, what I have noticed throughout film history, this was when twist endings especially started to blow up in horror because everybody wanted to replicate that. So The Sixth Sense, for those of you who haven't seen, and as I said before, if you haven't, why are you still listening to this? I'm gonna spoil everything about the movie. The Sixth Sense follows a child psychologist who is treating a little boy in Philadelphia who claims to be able to see dead people. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the psychologist is one of the dead people the whole time. And this is, like I said before, this is one of those movies that that it's not necessarily obvious, especially if it's your first time seeing it. They did a very good job of hiding hiding that fact in in very plain sight. Monique, when when did you first watch The Sixth Sense? How old were you? I was young. I was very, very young. I might even say that I watched it very, like, soon after its release, you know? Really? Um, because we're, we're yeah. the same age, so you would have been in kindergarten? First grade. I was in first grade in 99. I'm trying to remember how, how old I was in 99. It might, I might have been a little bit older, um, but it was like... You know, I'm still, I'm in early elementary school. Um, I'm a child. I definitely should not be watching horror films kind of age because like this, I mean, I could not handle the ghosts. Like I had to cover my eyes every time. They're intense in this one. Uh, Yeah, I was very young. And not, not even with necessarily like any major effects not a whole lot of effects makeup or anything like that. Like the, the ghosts don't even necessarily do anything particularly unnatural. It's just that well done. Like the it's that well written. The the lines that they do deliver are so eerie and creepy and the performances are also good. It's just like every fucking beat of that movie, it, it works for me. When you watched it the first time, did you have any sense that Bruce Willis was going to turn out to be deceased absolutely not i was a child (laughs) no i had no idea i had no idea you know like i was such a naive child just whatever you told me i was going to gobble it up so for all intents and purposes this this very like nice man was not dead in my young child brain and that he was and it like i can still i feel like it's, it's very similar to like the violet feeling it was like yeah it like shattered my reality a little bit. It's it's the first twist ending that I remember. I don't know that it's the first movie that I ever saw uh, that included a twist ending, but it's the first one that I can remember seeing and reacting to the fact that it was a twist and just being so utterly floored. I watched it the first time with my parents. It was on, I think on on ABC Family during their their. Halloween. ABC Family? Yeah, back when it was still ABC Family and not Freeform. It's on a family show? I don't know how, I haven't watched uh, Freeform's 31 Nights of Halloween or whatever it is, but I remember back when they were still ABC Family, it was, it was like all bets were off on programming content. That, I watched Misery for the first time on ABC Family. They, they played 
I think they played Halloween, like the Michael Myers one, one year. Like they, it was just kind of like anything goes. I guess, I, I guess I shouldn't be so surprised. And it wasn't even late, like, like late night programming when they can start to show the edgy stuff. I watched Misery at like two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but yeah, my parents had seen it before and I had never even really heard of it at the time. But I was, I was very into the idea of becoming a filmmaker and I really loved horror so they're like you have to see this and it just floored me how old were you oh I was probably like 12 or 13 oh that's a different developmental stage yeah than me yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a little bit more emotionally ready to see it mm -hmm. yeah that's true I can't even imagine being a kid and being like, this can happen in a movie? Like... But my poor brain was like, this can happen in real life? Because that's... <laughs> yeah. That's what my... And I, I feel like that is... I mean, I feel like this movie, like, cemented, like, my deep-seated core fear of just, like, the horrifying aspects of, like... Because there is, like, there's some fantasy horror that's, like, so fantasy it could never happen. But this was, like, just so close to, like possible yeah there's like, like a, a, a deep realism to this movie i i will also confess that this movie launched a lifelong lifelong because i still love him a, a love for m night Shyamalan. i'm i'm a person who can who can enjoy an artist and also admit that that not every single entry of their of their catalog is perfect and there are certain m night Shyamalan movies that are better than others this one i would argue is still his best but i've i've since rewatched it quite a few times most recently just a couple weeks ago actually and i always love to point out to people the the, the clues because they're so well hidden until you notice them and then they're so fucking obvious and i like to to see which ones i can pick up on that i haven't seen before actually first what i want to i want to know are there any that that you have picked up on over the years. Well, I can't tell you the last time I watched The Sixth Sense was not a couple weeks ago. I, I don't think I picked up on any without, um, I, I feel like someone told me his clothes never change. You know, he it, it changes like the, he changes the way he wears them. So it looks like they're different every time. Yeah. He's always wearing, wearing some alteration of the pieces that he was wearing that night because the, the first night, whenever he gets home from the, the ceremony with, with Anna and they're drunk and celebrating, he takes off multiple pieces. His coat is hanging over a chair or something like that nearby, so we get to see him wear the coat. Um, he changes into a sweatshirt or something like that at one point, so he wears the sweatshirt, but it's always some variation of the pieces he was wearing that night. He never gets to wear anything else, which is interesting because that I like that rule. That rule makes sense to me. Absolutely. And it's not the rule in American Horror Story. No. <laughs> they seem they I would love to know how how fashion works in American Horror Story are they pieces do they have to accumulate them over the years we do see that in 1984 we see them steal clothes multiple times and then they wear them in different outfits right after that in the series but well and I guess they're they also know they're dead I don't think that they get to change clothes until they know they're dead that makes sense yeah I think you that... know but but we're talking about two different universes. Here. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Everyone has to follow the same ghost rules. Yeah, I think I, I think I like this version because of the fact that it that it allows you to to really subtly place some clues that when you get to go back and watch the movie once you know the twist, it's really satisfying to see them. 
I have another one. I have another twit. Like another. Yeah, tell me. The other thing that I picked up on after I figured out that he was dead was there's a conversation that I remember that happened between him and Anna, like after he's dead, but he doesn't know he's dead. And it like very much seems like he's talking to her and that she's just being cold, you know, like, and then you figure out like, oh, like she couldn't hear him. Exactly. It's not that she was upset with him or ignoring him. It's that like. That was a one-sided conversation, and that is so sad. There are a couple of those. The, the, there's the first one that I'm remembering, I think she's in the shower or something like that, and he just tries to like stand in the bathroom and talk to her, but she's just not answering, and that's when he sees that she's on antidepressants, which poor Malcolm really thinks that there's something terribly wrong with his marriage. He gets the idea that his wife is cheating because she starts sort of flirting with, with her business partner at the, um, I think it's an antique store that she works at when really she, poor girl's just trying to move on. But yeah, I think that's that's the first time that we, that we see anyway. I would imagine he's tried to have quite a few conversations with her where she just doesn't talk back. He's kind of, he, he really, the, the, the overarching theme for him that's kind of a clue is the fact that he is obsessed with unfinished business, which is the reason that he's being kept from moving on to begin with. Um, we learn at the beginning that, that there's this former patient of his that he treated that ended up growing up to not not have been doing any better for his help and blames Malcolm for this and breaks into their house and shoots Malcolm. And and Cole, who is Haley Joel Osment's character who can see dead people, kind of becomes the proxy to Malcolm for this. Like, it, I couldn't help this boy from my past, but maybe if I can help this new boy, I can make up for the fact that I failed, failed this other boy. But but the the big one, the big conversation that happens between Malcolm and Anna, there's a there's a scene where Malcolm is late to an anniversary dinner at a fancy restaurant that he and his wife Anna have been going to for years. He sits down, kind of unloads emotionally about about everything that's going on with Cole. And the entire time Anna is just kind of sitting there and seems very cold seems very removed every so often she she generally glances up in that direction and the scene ends with Anna kind of taking a moment quietly after he's finished talking and then she says happy anniversary and gets up and leaves but right before that she gets the check the check gets put on the table Malcolm reaches for it and Anna takes it and if you watch that scene and listen very very carefully in the moment when Anna swipes the 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 check away from Malcolm, there's a very quiet little creepy breath noise that plays. And if you listen, just it's just enough to, to kind of offset your nerves and be like, there was something wrong with that moment. But you can miss it if you're not listening carefully enough. And I love that. I love things like that. And Mike Shyamalan is great at, at little details like that, that if you pick up on it, it's like an oh shit moment. But, he, but you can also just completely overlook it because he's so good at hiding them. It never occurred to me, I don't think I ever realized that you don't ever see Malcolm using a door. Oh yeah, that's another big one. You never, any time in the movie, see him actually open, go through, and close a door. The closest that he ever gets is when he tries to go into his study in the basement, which is, he enters through that little side door that's under the stairs. And a couple times we see him go up to it and turn the knob and it's locked which is actually happening because Anna is locking it because nobody's down there to use it anymore. 
But yeah, we, we do see him try to use that door a few times, but he never goes through it. Any other time, we just see him, he's already in a room, or he comes through a doorway, or something like that, but he's, he's never able to open and close a door. And the other thing is that not only does he have these sort of one-sided conversations with Anna, but he never is spoken to by anyone in the movie except for Cole. Not a single time, which makes sense. There are parts where it's set up to look like it. Um, there's a scene where he he does like a home visit with with Cole, just and goes casually inviting himself into your home. And the scene begins with him and Cole's mother, played by Tony Collette, sitting across from each other in the living room. And it kind of looks like they're having an awkward moment, like maybe they've been talking, but they're not sure what to talk about now. And then Cole gets home, the mom gets up and goes to greet him and then leaves the room to go make dinner. And it kind of seems like she's just giving them privacy. And Cole sort of like takes a moment and looks at Malcolm with a sort of, oh God, why are you here? And it feels like he's like, God, I just don't want to talk to my therapist. But really it's, why are you in my home? You're <laughs> you're a dead person. But yeah, that's that's one of the moments where it, it it's staged to look like maybe he's been having a conversation, but really she's just not aware that he's there. And, and Malcolm is drawn to Cole because ghosts are drawn to Cole because they know that, like, he can see them? Yes, they can sense that, that he has, that he, I guess it's just sort of like a, a, a psychic energy sort of thing. They're drawn to him because of the fact that, that he's able to communicate with them, which throughout the movie, as Bruce Willis's character realizes that Vincent Gray, the little boy that he was treating when he was younger, the, the boy that he failed, he realizes that Vincent had the same ability. That's what was going on with him too. Um, so when he goes to Cole and he's like, I believe you, and I think maybe maybe all you have to do is listen to them, it's it's kind of the reveal that that's all, the, the, the point of the ghosts has never been, been to terrorize. It's always just been they're confused and they want help. Yeah. Which I think is beautiful. Yeah. I, that, that's one of the many things about this movie. It's, it's one of the most beautifully written supernatural horror films that I think I've ever seen. It's really sad to me that, you know, Vincent, the 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 person who he treats who ultimately grows up to murder him, ends up being a ghost himself. He's a little he's a little boy who can see ghosts and then he becomes a ghost himself. That's so sad. Wait, did you watch it on TV when you watched it? I have no idea. You have, I have no idea? No idea. Because I will say that that certain um, TV broadcasts of this movie, including the one that I saw, had the had the deleted scenes restored. So I actually, now nah, I'm gonna talk about this, this this next time. We we will get to this next time about the the alternate ending for the Sixth Sense that I will forever argue was a was a mistake to cut <laughs> because it is far superior. I think um, that you and I should watch this movie and maybe also do a commentary. I think that we absolutely should do a commentary. That's, yes, for sure. So yeah, I'll, I'll get a little bit into that, the the alternate ending and also just the, the moment of the reveal next time I talk about this topic. I think that's probably a good time to take a commercial break. Uh, stay tuned when, after this brief message, Monique will be back to talk about some other creepy stuff. It's a filthy goddamn horror show. We usually plug a charity during this time that we want you guys to check out and support in any way that you can. 
But because this is the episode of American Horror Story Murder House, where Violet is in fact dead the entire time after overdosing on pills, I thought this would be a great opportunity to share some resources with you if you are experiencing suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation. There is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which you can access by calling 1-800-273-8255. You can also text the crisis text line by texting hello to 741-741. Please reach out if you are in need of help. You are not alone. Suicide is preventable, and it's nothing to be ashamed of when you're having those thoughts or feeling those urges. Welcome back to It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show. I would like to talk about the movie that I watched this week that, you know, was inspired by um, this week's episode of American Horror Story and had had a central theme of a haunted artifact. Um, So I watched The Exorcist, which came out in 1973, directed by William Friedkin. And this is not the first time I have seen this movie I want to preface. So this is this is another movie that like made it into my my like very early foundation um, of horror. And it's not. I did not watch this movie until I was an adult. But I remember vividly. I don't even remember who I where I was. I have no idea how old I was. I don't even know whose room this was. But there was a poster of the exorcist of like her mangled face and like you know like the little bit of the vomit and i was so young that like seeing that poster was enough for me i was like no (laughs) you will never be able to convince me to watch this movie oh i love that especially because i don't know how much we've talked about this in the past but I'll, i'll be brief about it i professionally i design broadway posters so i love poster design and that is also an experience that I had that there were certain movies when I was younger that just the poster alone was enough. The only way I could keep my mind from breaking, and it, it, I def- this was like something I learned pro- probably for my own personal benefit, like way too old, um, you know, like adolescence, maybe even like young adulthood when I'd watch horror, I would like have to have this moment where I'm like, oh yeah, this is a movie. Everything in here is fake. <laughs> And before having that realization, like, I would become so engrossed in, like, the emotional experience of the characters that I, it, I mean, it was a roller coaster ride for me. But, I mean, that's why we watch horror. It, it's like a safe, it's a safe experience of terror, you know? That's true. And we never want to, we never want to experience terror in real life. I mean, it's the same reason why we go on roller coasters, but The Exorcist, so... I, I do want to say I'm so impressed by, like, the child actor in this movie. It's incredible. I even did a little <laughs> bit of research. Linda Blair plays Reagan in the movie. And I, I can, like, never stop thinking about, like, the emotional impact of a child, like, playing that role. And, I mean, especially as, like, it got into the more, like, graphic, like, writhing um, even her, like, having to mouth some of those words. Um, they actually... I did. I have a little bit of fun facts, and I'm excited to, like, spill in here because I don't usually talk about movies this way, but they did um, try it with her, her actual voice, 
to be the demon and just like distorting it, but didn't wasn't impactful enough. So they hired a voice actor to do it. But there and there are some scenes that Linda Blair did not do, um, like specifically like the crucifix masturbation scene. Linda Blair did not do, which I'm like, thank goodness. Yeah. That's 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 heavy to watch, let alone anyway. Have you looked at all about the uh, the real life serial killer who's in the movie? No. Oh my god. Okay. So um, the scene in the movie where where Reagan's mom, played by the magnificent Ellen Bernstein, um, takes she takes Reagan to the hospital and they're running all these tests on her and there's the I think it's an MRI machine, the wildly loud, terrible machine that she gets strapped to. The technician in that scene was not a professional actor. He was a real MRI technician. And they hired him because he worked there at the hospital and they were like, we want to get actual people who know what they're doing and can do this process so that... And that, that's always something that strikes me about that scene is how detailed it is. Um, all of the medical scenes where she's having tests run on her. But that man, his name was Paul Bateson. He, was the, he played the radiological technologist. And... After the fact, in 1979, so this movie came out in 1973, so six years later, he was convicted of the murder of a journalist, um, I believe a film journalist, named Addison Verrill here in New York City. And after the fact, it turned out that Paul Bateson was responsible for a string of gay murders that was going on in New York City at the time. They had been looking for this guy for years. I think... I, can't, I think they called him the trash bag killer because of all of the, the bodies were found in pieces in trash bags in the Hudson. But yeah, they found out after the fact. That's one of the, the reasons that The Exorcist is known, um, along with Poltergeist, as being a cursed movie because of, of a number of awful things that happened after the fact or during the production of it. And this was one of them that they found out that they, this quiet little radiologist that they had hired to be in the movie turned out to be a serial killer. I would I would like to point out the coincidence. I didn't even, this was not intentional. Um, my topic this week is haunted artifacts. I have watched a movie about a haunted artifact that the movie itself is what you're telling me is, is a haunted artifact. That it like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, like, there's this curse and this lore around the movie. Do you know any other things that you can enlighten us with about the curse of The Exorcist? Apparently it started largely... It started as a rumor based on the fact that people were having um, adverse physical reactions to the screenings, which is one of my favorite facts about The Exorcist. It's also a fact about Psycho, that people were so disturbed by the intensity or set off by the the possession scenes that include kind of strobe effects and things like that that people were vomiting and or passing out during screenings um apparently one woman blamed the film for the fact that she had a miscarriage after seeing it yikes that's heavy at one point there was a fire that that burned down most of the set except for reagan's bedroom that was the only thing that was untouched I don't like that. Yeah, right? I don't like that. There were also, um, uh, like, particularly right-wing Christian critics and groups that like to claim that you could be possessed by demons just by watching the film because it was so perverse. But this is, I mean, this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, this is a movie, like, first of its kind, right? Like, Absolutely. Like, such intense, like, graphic 
horror, like like just like demonic horror like this had not really... Not in a mainstream horror movie, certainly not. I, I couldn't help taking like the perspective of like this poor girl, like what... It doesn't help for me that I'm a therapist like as I watch these movies because I'm like, she, this is... When, when it ends and she's just like happy I mean she doesn't remember what happens but when it ends and she's just like I'm gonna be back I'm just gonna go back to being me now I'm like your body still has like the physical impact of everything that just happened like it like the the amount in which she her body and her face like deteriorates like the like the gunk on her teeth I'm like it looks like she hasn't brushed her teeth in like 20 years it, it's like this this girl is gonna need something um <laughs> and and even like putting her through like the mri machines you know like if, and and you know doing those really like painful medical procedures to you know try to help and fix her and and i couldn't like also i also couldn't help but like just kind of you know feel a little like rubbed the wrong way by uh you know like this underlying tone of like it's mental health that she's experiencing and it being like this just like so intensely graphic that is how you know yeah that's big in in i would say most possession movies is is the other side of the argument is usually no it was mental health the one that really comes to mind is the exorcism of emily rose absolutely yeah i mean i do feel like that the exorcism of emily rose feels a little less like heavy-handed to me like it seemed feasible you know like it seemed almost believable that there, there could be a mental health challenge but with like the exorcist it's like i don't <laughs> i don't think so yeah people don't turn green from mental illness well i i'm gonna tell you about some some different haunted artifacts that i've learned about um this this week I'm going to start out with um, a painting called The Hands Resist Him. Um, this might be a painting that you've seen before because it definitely, it was definitely familiar to me. So it's a picture of a boy. Um, I think he's supposed to be about six years old. I'm standing in front of like a glass pane window and there's a creepy doll sitting next to him. Um, his face is, it's just, it's just unsettling. Um, there's just... I, I, for our viewers, I now have this painting in front of me, and I highly recommend doing so because I actually have never seen this painting, and I a little bit wish that that were still the case because Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing too, like when I was doing this research, I mean, it should does it surprise anyone that I am a little superstitious that when I read um, people saying like they've felt ill after looking at this picture for too long i was like oh i'm not gonna look at this picture for too long i kind of want to close it there, there is a backstory that i can i can share with you about how this painting came about but this i think the thing that like gets you about this the way this child looks is that he you know has no eyebrows really i mean he's got a good brow structure <laughs> and like his eyes are just vacant and they're like shadowed and he looks like uh, you know, a hollow being. Um, There's something about about the look of his his eyes and his face that looks like a grumpy, creepy old man, like packed into the body of a child. Absolutely, and and that's unsettling in and of itself. And I, the other thing that's really important to mention is, you know, on the other side of the glass pane window are hands. Some some pressed up on the glass, some just kind of draped and like reaching out of the dark. 
I mean, this is a, it's an unnatural image. Like this isn't a photograph you would ever actually see. And if you saw it, you would want to, you'd want to leave. So this, this is a painting created by Bill Stoneham. It was painted in 1972. The boy is based on a photograph of the artist when he was five years old. Um, and what, what the artist has described about, you know, the painting is that the doorway is a representation of the dividing line between the waking world and the world of fantasy and impossibilities. While the doll is a guide that will escort the boy through. I don't know if I want that as my guide. <laughs> <laughs> the hands represent alternate lives or possibilities. So that is the artist's interpretation of the painting. That's a much more hopeful interpretation than than I would gather just by the looking at the painting. This this artist like this artist had absolutely no idea that his painting had become like a cultural phenomenon. So the painting became the subject of an urban legend and became a viral in internet meme in February of 2000 when it was posted for sale on eBay along with a description implying that it was haunted. So when it was first painted it was displayed in the Fine Garden Gallery in Beverly Hills, California. Um, and during the show, the painting was purchased by actor John Marley, who was notable as his role as Jack Waltz in The Godfather. John Marley died shortly after that. But before he died, he, he sold the painting. He had gotten rid of the painting. It goes through a few, you know, a few different hands before a couple finds the painting at the site of an old brewery. Um, and they are the ones who put the painting up for auction on eBay in 2000. The things that they claimed would happen in the painting itself was the characters moved around during the night and they would sometimes leave the painting and enter the room in which the painting was being displayed. The listing also included a series of photographs that were said to be evidence of the incident, which the, where the female doll um, threatened the little boy in the painting with a gun that she was holding, causing him to attempt to leave the painting. So this is evidence that this couple provided. Now, these are the things um, that kind of happened in their home. They had a four-year-old daughter who claimed that the children in the painting were fighting and coming into her room at night. The father set up a, a motion-sensitive camera in her room to show his daughter that there was nothing to be afraid of, and instead he saw the boy crawl out from the painting. And some people have claimed that simply viewing photos of the painting made them feel ill or give them unpleasant experiences. So close your windows. Don't look at it anymore, guys. <laughs> I Yeah, I want it gone from my screen. <laughs> the, the artist also recalled that both the owner of the gallery, where the painting was first displayed, and the art critic who reviewed it died within one year of coming into contact with the painting. Um, and so far, 10 people have died since being close to the hands that resist him. Today, the painting rests in the storage unit of the person who bought the, the painting off of the eBay listing. His name is Kim Smith, and he has a, an art gallery in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's, it's well, it's like in a storage closet in this um this art gallery that he owns he doesn't show it he only has brought it out a couple times when people have like specially requested to see it i think he's only brought it out like a handful of times so i, I guess i guess the real power of it is looking at it because or like having it displayed not that i want to analyze this experience but i mean the the person who bought it in 2000 you know still owns it and is alive and well so the next haunted artifact I want to talk about is, well, it's, it's, it's a collection of artifacts, but they're called the Women of Lem. 
1878, a small statue carved from pure limestone was unearthed in Lem, Cyprus. It was dated to have been created around um, 3,500 BC. This was at a time when the islands were, or the, the inhabitants of the islands were known as um, Cypriots. So it's cross-shaped, it's a cruciform shape, you know, it's not well deta detailed, it's pretty crude. Basically, the statue is similar to hundreds of other like cross-shaped statues from around the same time period, but they're not exactly the same. Um, and there have been like 100 of these statues found. Some of them are, are more detailed than others, some are smaller. The smaller ones are recovered from burial sites, while the larger ones are thought to have like a ceremonial significance. There's no archaeological record of any excavation of, or the actual discovery of these statues. Like I said, the only thing that you know, can, be a can be found is that they were unearthed in 1878, but no name of, of who found them. And these statues are considered to be like either like a fertility statue or like a, a, a goddess um, who's been, whose name has been lost to time, like an important goddess in their culture. But these statues have also earned the nickname of, of goddess of death because there have been so many fatalities connected to people who have either owned or touched these statues. So you know, the first prominent person is someone named Lord Elfont. He was the first owner during the time of Cyprus when Cyprus was a British colony. Um, and within six years of buying the statue, he and seven members of his family passed away. It's a lot of people to die in six years. Ivor Minucci obtained the statue in Europe and had a similar experience. His entire family died within four years. The third owner was Lord Thompson Noel, and his whole family also perished within four years. So the fourth owner, Sir Alan Biverbrook, died as well, along with his wife and his two daughters. He had two sons who survived and donated the statue to the Royal Scottish Museum in Edinburgh. They got rid of that shit. <laughs> Smart. The museum cur uh, curator who handled the statue died within a year, and the statue was actually held in a glass box, a glass case in the museum, is untouched by human hands, and if you touch it, you must be wearing gloves. It Like, no human contact whatsoever to touch the statue. Something else that was kind of interesting that I, that I discovered is that not a lot can be found about the different people who have been known to, to own the statue. Like, there's no record of Lord Elfont. There's there's nothing, you know, about, like, the British nobility or, like, the, the British government that, that mentioned anything about him during this time. Can't find anything about the Minucci family except for articles specific to owning the statue. No records of Lord or Thompson Noel or Sir Alan Biverbrook. What's even stranger? Like, the only reason I included, like, this bit of information, because this kind of tells you, like, oh, well, then this must be made up. Like, this none of this stuff ever happened. And you know what? That could very well be true. But here's what is... What makes this so peculiar? An online search of the National Museums of Scotland, if you do a search for this statue, for this museum, in its archives, it does not show the item in its inventory. You can't find it on the museum website. Like things, like intentionally things around this, the statue cannot be found. So I'm like, we gotta, oh. we gotta like give some credit where it's due, right? Yeah. Um, so the last thing I wanted to talk about today is 
it is the most peculiar uh, haunted artifact I think I came upon where I was like, that is just, that's strange. Um, you know, these things I've talked about so far, like they make some kind of sense, but I'm going to talk about bunk beds. There's like a specific bunk bed that... Okay. <laughs> um, called, well, I mean, I guess I don't know if they were ever given a name, but they're referenced to as the Tolman bunk beds. So... In 1987, Alan and Debbie Tolman purchased a set of bunk beds at a secondhand store in Wisconsin, and they put the bunk beds in the basement until they finished painting their, their children's room. And then they moved the bed into the room and the children started to use the bed. Well, one of their sons got a cold out of nowhere, which, yeah, you know, children do that, but got like e extremely ill. The radio in the bedroom started turning itself on and off. The daughter claimed to see a witch standing over her on the bottom bunk who had long black hair and glowed like fire. No. Doors were opening and slamming, lights turning on and off, the family hearing whispers in the walls. Um, you know, it got to a point, like many other stories we've told in this podcast, where the family decides we need professional help. And they asked a pastor to come and cleanse the home. And the activity did die down for a while and then came back extra hard no so like the like the climax of of this story is when the father alan heard a voice telling him to come here and and was trying to entice him into a burning room before telling him you're dead so he heard a voice say come here and then he the same voice said you're dead the these next parts is like so extreme blood started oozing from the ceiling of the home and there was apparently a hole to hell in the basement <laughs> okay which i mean i've i've already disclosed that i am a little bit of like a, a spiritual kind of afterlife just amateur I, I i know a lot about ghostly things uh, and and there is a lot to say about wells in in any any building that like those wet dark deep places call to you know malevolent things and that they stored the bed in the basement but i will tell you that when they got rid of the bunk beds the activity stopped wow i think i would have done it sooner <laughs> yeah maybe um I, but i do feel like being you know beckoned into a burning room was like he's like i'm good we're done now yeah, yeah. of course it of course it's like the straw that breaks the the dad's back right and when it comes to like terrifying things happening in a home it's always the dad being like everything is fine until the dad's like <laughs> denied it for so long that he definitely put everybody's life in danger but yeah. nathan are, are you ready for a twist ending i think i am ready for a twist ending let's do it so i want to talk about two little little factoids that i discovered in the the researching of of my topics for this week um just two little fun things about the show uh the first one deals with the opening credits which i have talked about during final twists on the series before um but this specific one is a clue that shows up in the opening credits of murder house that i had never picked up on being a clue before and during the opening credits there's a very brief image of a man being suffocated with a plastic bag which is something that we see in this episode with Mr. Uh, Mr. Eskandarian, the, the property developer who wants to buy the murder house and level it to put up units. Eventually he meets his end in the basement after Moira bites his dick off and then uh, Larry suffocates him with a plastic bag. 
So that was, that was, I knew that there were some clues laced in the, the opening credits of every season that are events that eventually pop up or uh, reveals that eventually happen. But that was one that I had never picked up on before and I thought that that was just kind of cool. And then the second one is, uh, I want to talk about Marcy. Um, Marcy has always been one of the characters that I, I very much enjoy and I love to hate her. She's terrible. She is absolutely racist. She is um, uh, just a wildly incompetent realtor, but she's hilarious and so well played by the actress that plays her. And I actually found out that Ryan Murphy has admitted that Marcy is one of his, his very favorite characters and that he's obsessed with her. There's a quote from him where he said, I love her. Every episode we're talking about, we're gonna kill Marcy in this episode and this is the episode that we're gonna do it. And then eventually they would end up writing more and more of her because he didn't wanna do it. Like they couldn't get rid of her. He says that she's a racist and a homophobe and the worst realtor in the world. She's that incompetent bumbler and I like to imitate her in the writer's room. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really interesting to like hear some of those just like interesting like nuggets about what the creators of the show were, were feeling like really akin to in the show. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk about my twist ending this week because it it kind of like went into this. It's it was it's like a very similar process to I think our our topics of the week where it really is kind of like a winding road to like you don't always know where you're gonna end um, or what you're gonna find. And I I am so excited to talk to you about what I like to refer to as like just you know ghastly relationships. I was inspired by part of your topic, I think it was from last week when um, our, our friend Patty began dating a, a demon that she summoned with her Ouija board. And, and I was just so curious about this phenomena of, of being in relationships with ghosts, which, you know, up until this episode, Violet was doing. Um, now, it's, now it's ghost on ghost. But an instance of, of like this phenomenon, if you can remember, it was, I mean, it like, again, it's kind of in my like cultural touchstone foundation of a human being. Tell me if this rings a bell. Anna Nicole Smith having sex with a ghost? No bells ringing yet. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know, she was an American model, actress, and a television personality. Uh, she first gained popularity in Playboy magazine when she won the title of 1993 Playmate of the Year. She might also be very well known for marrying a petroleum tycoon, J. Howard Marshall, in 1994. Many, many people thought that she married him for his money because she was very young and he was 86 when they met. Well, he died when... Uh, that's kind of where everything, I think, came to a head, is when he died when he was 90. And uh, she kind of... Um, I'm not going to speak too much about it, but... She kind of, she kind of claimed his money in in like, a, not like a very like legal way. So so like my first, I mean Anna Nicole Smith is not like a part of like my foundation as a human being, but like the story of her talking about having sex with a ghost. I guess I can't say if it was a very famous interview. I don't even know how I watched it. I I don't know if it was like. It's infamous what she had to say in an interview with FHM in 2004. Um, a, she's, this is her quote. A ghost would crawl up my leg and have sex with me at an apartment a long time ago in Texas. I used to think it was my boyfriend. Then one day I woke up and found out it wasn't. So she thought she was actually having sex with her boyfriend. And then 
like opened her eyes and was like, oh, there's nobody here. So that's stuck in my little child brain. I mean, I'll, this this episode is all about things I should have never been exposed to as a child. And <laughs> that could be a podcast in and of itself. But I was just like, what? What? So I was kind of, you know, I, I got a little curious about people who've, who are, are I mean, not famous, um, but... You know they've they've built a reputation on dating ghosts. Um, I don't expect you to know who any of these people are because I didn't, but I think it's very interesting. And these are like modern people, like within the last several years. Um, so there's this man named uh, Gary Denoya. Um, he's a 37 year old American man, and he has a ghost girlfriend Lisa that he met in a restaurant when he was dining alone two years ago because he was recommended the risotto dish by her. Oh. And there, there was a couple different articles about this man and his relationship. Um, I think the first article that I read was that he, he did not want to um, introduce her to his parents. He did not want to tell his parents because, you know, he, he they're still like forming a bond, and he, he but he was introducing um, his girlfriend to his friends. Is there any indication about uh, how he would go about doing that? You know, I will say there. The articles with Gary include a lot of photos of him holding up his arm and and, and as if he's like holding a, another body, but there's nothing there. Like he's taking a selfie. So I have to imagine it's probably very similar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what he had to say about the, the experience of introducing his girlfriend, his ghost girlfriend to his friends, where most people are initially confused or think that I'm joking, but once they see how happy she makes me, they're totally cool with it. Unfortunately, the last article that I read, um, you know, came out sometime during the pandemic and their relationship was on the rocks. She, you know, at first they were inseparable, um, but then she started to be gone more and more and, she, and he is fearful that she is sleeping with other people. So um, the next the next person I'm gonna talk about, I think is a little bit, she's maybe a little bit more famous. Um, like she did TV interviews for like, it's a TV show, I think, in, like, the UK called This Morning. She's done a couple interviews with them. But she is a 30-year-old spiritual guidance counselor from the UK, and she has turned her back on having sex with men and has only had sex with ghosts for more than a decade. And she has had sexual encounters with 20 different ghost lovers. She, like, one of the first interviews I think that she did was to talk about um, a relationship that she had with a ghost that she met in Australia, and he came back with her to the UK, um, and they were going to get married and have a baby. We know that doesn't go well from this season. <laughs> well, and, and I, I, like, listened to her, like, describe the process of, like, how she thinks that would work, and she talked about, like, phantom pregnancy, which... I don't know how comfortable I necessarily feel about talking about it the same way that she did. I, I guess I should say, like, full disclaimer, I don't believe this is what happens. But Amethyst believes that, like, a ghost, like, like a phantom pregnancy is, is, is you are pregnant with a, with a spirit baby. Like, there's not a real baby in there, but there's a, a ghost baby in your growing inside of your uterus. I see. So she believes that's possible. So she is going to find some way to make it a real baby. Um, but unfortunately, they did not make it. Their relationship did not make it. Um, she called off her wedding with her ghost fiance because he kept disappearing and started doing drugs. <gasps> ghost drugs. He would disappear for long periods of time. And when he did come back, he'd bring other spirits to the house and they'd just stay around for days. 
So he was not being respectful. Something else I thought was interesting about Amethyst, she had her first sexual encounter with a ghost while she was still in a relationship with her, her human fiance, um, her ex-fiance now, um, who discovered that she was cheating when the ghost apparently showed its physical form to him, something that Amethyst had never seen before. But she just got, like, bored one day. Like, I guess her fiancé was gone a lot, so she just, like, accepted the advances of, of this ghost that she had, like, felt very comfortable with and started dating him instead. And she has only dated ghosts since then. So I want to I wanna give a little... I want to give some interesting facts about this phenomenon. So this is called spectrophilia, which is a fetish or condition where people display a strong sexual attraction to ghosts and spirits. There's a name for it. Most people experience ghost sex as a dream or as they're falling in or out of sleep. Scientists estimate that this is because our brains are especially susceptible to hallucinations during those times. If this has been appealing to anybody, if it's been like oddly fascinating to listen to people being in relationships, you know, romantic or sexual with ghosts, the Travel Channel aired a documentary called Ghostly Lovers that featured interviews with dedicated spectrophiles, and this came out in 2012. I haven't seen it, so like I can't say, like, go watch it, it's great, but um, there I might. Now I'm curious. I might. On that, on that lovely note, that does bring us to the end of our show for this week. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed learning about the American horror genre and horror history that inspired uh, the genre of American horror. If you like what you heard this week, do us a favor and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok at Filthy GD Horror Show, Instagram at Filthy GD Horror Show, Twitter at Filthy GD Horror, and we're on YouTube. You can also email us your questions or suggestions at FilthyGDHorrorShow at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please consider donating to our featured charity this week. Uh, Links to that organization can be found in the episode description. The show isn't sponsored by this organization or any other. We just really like to give shout outs to people who do good things. Now, if you haven't watched the sixth episode of the new season of American Horror Story, this is the end of the podcast for you. Otherwise, stay tuned for our reactions to Double Feature and tune in next week where we'll be exploring episode 8 of American Horror Story Murder House on... American Horror Story Season 10, Double Feature, Part 1, Red Tide, Episode 6, Mid-Season Finale, Winter Kills. What'd you think? It, I, I'm not really that impressed. Yeah? The, the ending felt, in comparison to what they had set up the entire rest of the season, this ending was just a very, like, haphazard throw together of of just ending it because they have to and we've seen this happen before with American Horror Story but like it's just it's so unhinged there are a lot of choices made by characters that kind of like don't hold up under scrutiny that you just kind of have to accept because it's a horror show and things are crazy and that hasn't so much been the case so far this season everything has been very solid in a in a I don't want to say surprising way, but just in a, in a very impressive way. I think they tried to make a really big splash after this really, like, strong momentum that they had of we need to go out with absolute 
gore and blasphemy. The thing that like none of it and none of it is just every single kind of scene, every act in this episode was just unnecessarily over the top. I think about Alma just straight up killing her own dad, eating his own blood, no remorse. I It definitely shocked me, which was probably more to the point than whether or not it served the story. Um, but it, yeah, it didn't, it was almost justified by what we had seen in the story, but it just, it was just a step too far. And it was done so coldly, and so with with a an eye toward being as spooky and scary and sassy and dark as it could. I think that Ursula is a horrible saleswoman. I think she's like a like, or or a pro- horrible profit maker because she is just like haphazardly giving out the black pills with no repercussion or I guess she's just like taking the chance that the ones who who don't turn into pale people and <laughs> I don't know destroy the city of LA will then come to her and be like hey it worked for me let's work together like she's just planning to do what she can with the ashes but again that's so over the top <laughs> in comparison to what this season has been doing so far it felt like the ending of a different of a different storyline of a different show like you said, the whole inti- the entire second half was just someone getting a little bit too excited. You know, Alma murdering her opponent, what a, her competition right there outside the audition and being like... It doesn't oh, make any so, sense. No. It doesn't make any sense. There's absolutely no way that they wouldn't suspect her, especially after the fact that she, the official story that they agreed to go with is that Harry is the one who killed everybody. So are you really going to tell me that if this, if this prolific screenwriter who turned out to be a serial killer, if his daughter showed up in LA and someone, the, the one other person in a room with her happened to be murdered the same way, they wouldn't be like, Hmm, they would just be like, here's your violin. Here's, here's your start date. Congratulations, welcome to the Philharmonic. I'm just realizing now, I think the best part of this episode was this the scene, like the monologue that her her competition gave her about what she could expect. If Cause that was like, I was like spot on for sure. Like sh- there's no way. I mean, we've, we definitely started this, this part one of the season with so much empathy for this child. And, <laughs> and at the end we're just like, I, I was like, Look, Alma, I don't care what happens to her. I kind of <laughs> hope she dies a little bit. This is too much. It's too extra. And and I, I kind of don't care that she's going to spend the rest of her life kind of chasing this impossible high because she reached her peak at nine. Like, you, you can't... Like, there's limits to what you can do no matter how much you enhance your brain. And I will say that that, that, that moment, that monologue from her competition is... I will give the episode that, that that was a very poignant way to wrap up her storyline that she has been so focused all this time on being the best because she thinks that's the only thing that she has, that that that's going to be enough, that she just has to be the most talented. And this other guy kind of like takes her down a notch and and, and makes her see for just a second, it's a business and it's so much more complicated than that. It's not just about talent. It's about a whole bunch of things that you can't always control. And I think that breaks her in that moment just a little bit. And that's when we finally see 
her kind of go to the next step of what her character is going to be, that she is not only willing to kill to be the best, now she is willing to kill anybody who might even threaten the fact that she is the best. I mean, I think we talked a little bit about the pale people, but I don't know if we... That was just kind of where my first, my brain first jumped to, is just, like, the the ridiculousness of the different... Of every, like, movement and, and every act that, like, brought us to the next place of where we needed to go to get them to L.A. And then they're just, like, this 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 weird, quirky little family just destroying cities. And, and now, uh, I, I guess... I'm, I really am just looking forward to cleansing my palate a little bit from un- unnecessary un- unnecessary gore and nonsensical uh, plot lines. <laughs> it's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show is created by Monique Quistorf and Nathan Skethway. Nathan also edits and mixes our show. To find out about the music used in this episode, check out our website at filthygdhorrorshow.com. It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show is a podcast created by American Horror Story fans and is in no way affiliated with the show.